0: Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan. And this is how we do it. And right now you're listening to Legal Faceoff on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers, Rich Lenkoff and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Time for the latest installment
1: of the Legal Face-Off podcast here on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brandon, as always joined by our two hosts, Tina Martini of McDermott, Will & Emery. Tina, how are you doing today?
2: Great. How are you, Joe?
1: Doing okay. Doing okay. And our other co-host, Rich Lankoff of Bryce Downey & Lankoff. Rich, great to see you and hear you today. Good to see you, Joe. Thanks. So earlier today, as we record here on Monday, August 9th, New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo's top aide has resigned as the governor is uh, reaching potential impeachment. It comes in less than a week after the release of a report that Cuomo sexually harassed 11 women. We have Deborah Katz, who represents some of those accusers, and also a founding partner of Katz Marshall and Banks. She's also the 2018 Civil Rights Lawyer of the Year by Best Lawyers in America. Deborah, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you, Deborah. Your uh, client is Charlotte Bennett, who is a former executive assistant to the governor. She accused back in February uh, the governor of asking inappropriate questions and making her feel as though he wanted to sleep with her, among other. Um, inappropriate behavior. How did your client feel when she heard about the AG's report and how do you feel about it?
4: Uh, she felt vindicated and she was vindicated. Uh, it was a. We knew that the investigators were conducting a really robust uh, investigation. They subpoenaed her. They reviewed hundreds of documents from Ms. Bennett and they spent a significant amount of time interviewing her and then taking a full deposition. So we knew that this report was going to be a really comprehensive look, and we knew that the governor had engaged in serial sexual harassment. So we had no doubt about the likely outcome of the investigation, uh, but it's always good to see it.
2: So Deborah, Cuomo specifically mentioned your client in his televised response. He said he was actually trying to help her work through her previous trauma and he portrays his behavior as a mere misunderstanding. What was your client's reaction, and what's yours to this response? It's absurd. The
4: governor is the governor of the state of New York. He is not a therapist. He has. He should have no business. Sorry, he should have no business uh, injecting himself in the private life of his employees, asking completely inappropriate invasive questions and we're not buying it this was clearly an effort on the part of the governor to ingratiate himself with her make her feel that he's a a good man who cares about her And, and then the next interaction that they had after that he came on to her so she is not mistaken about what the governor's intention was and his effort to dress it up by saying he was trying to be helpful is really absurd
3: Deborah, Brittany Comiso, who was identified in the AG's report as executive assistant number one, we now know her name, she has uh, come out and uh, alleged that the governor um, groped her, basically, uh, on two separate occasions. That has led to the Albany uh, sheriff announcing on Friday that he is investigating, and that might very well lead to some misdemeanor charges against the governor Um, Do you think that that is appropriate, number one, a criminal charge? And also, if you can, comment on whether you think the governor should be impeached. I think
4: the governor should resign and save everybody the pain and difficulty and trauma of having to go through an impeachment hearing because the result is a foregone conclusion. Uh, He's losing all of his top aides. He has no support and he should not have support. He does not deserve this position and he should save us all a lot of trauma and time and expense by stepping down. In the middle of COVID, we need the chief executive of the state of New York laser focused on dealing with the pandemic, dealing with return to schools, dealing with return to work issues and not fending off allegations of serial sexual harassment. If he does not step down, he should be impeached because he does not deserve the position he holds. He repeatedly violated the very law he signed and he should not be in office. And it pains me because I supported Uh, the governor. I think he's done some very good work, but he has repeatedly violated the law and he does not deserve the public trust any longer.
3: And what about a criminal charge? You agree with that as well?
4: I'm not a a prosecutor, but it does seem to meet the elements. He touched somebody without their consent. He touched somebody's breast without their consent. That is a criminal um, misdemeanor, sexual assault. Yes.
2: So Deborah, Cuomo blames his behavior on generational and cultural differences. I think you I think I know what you're going to say with regard to Cuomo himself, but do those sorts of issues or you know factors ever play into these types of cases in a meaningful way that's legitimate?
4: First of all, he's 63, he's my age. Uh, we went to law school at the same time. I know what the law requires, and so does he. The problem is the governor thought he was above the law, and he thought his behavior was welcome and cute, and everybody would love to be manhandled at pawed and ogled by the government. He was wrong. So uh, just as a, as a threshold matter, it's a stupid defense. And if he tried to make that defense, he would lose each and every time he made it. It doesn't have any hold water in any court of law, that I'm a dinosaur. And I've heard people say that when they're 80 and 85, and maybe a jury would have a little bit more sympathy for that. But here's the guy who signed the most protective laws in the United States protecting victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault after, after the, uh, the Weinstein allegations came forward. And he touted this to great fanfare. He talked about the indignity of being sexually harassed. He knows the legal requirements. He's just chosen to flout them.
3: Deborah, you've spent a good portion of your career representing many high-profile women in these kinds of cases, including, very notably, Christine Blakey Ford, who accused Justice Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault. Given that Brett Kavanaugh is currently you know, on the highest court in the land, arguably one of the most powerful jurists on the planet, and also that as we sit here right now, Governor Cuomo is still occupying the executive mansion in Albany. Where do you think we stand in terms of accountability for these kinds of uh, accusations?
4: I think the Me Too movement has created a sea change in how we see these issues. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh, we would not have had a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee had there not been a Me Too movement, and women would not have felt a, a, a commitment and obligation to come forward to support other women pre the Me Too movement. I'm convinced of that. That doesn't mean that it eradicates sexual harassment. It is an endemic problem. It is a structural problem in our society that men are typically in positions of power. They earn more, they control uh, the terms and conditions of most people's employment. And that's, until that changes, until you have women in every seat of power, in boardrooms, and uh, being paid equally sexual harassment will persist as long as somebody needs a paycheck to be able to put food on their table they're going to put up with having their ass grabbed at work and you're not going to have lawyers take on the cases of low-income workers because without a union people do not take those cases so this is a long-standing problem and it's going to take a very long time to address this problem but i'm hopeful i'm hopeful that you're having this dialogue with me because that means that we care about the issues. And once you care about the issues, you can't deny that they, these problems exist. So I'm, I'm hopeful. It's just going to take a long time.
3: Deborah, last question here on Legal Faceoff. We saw in the Cuomo response and also the response of his attorneys, um, you know, sort of the same old playbook that we've seen all the time, basically blaming the victims, victim shaming, um, saying there's another side to it. Uh, talk to us again from your perspective as someone who has represented so many victims of these kind of issues um, uh, you know, this kind of harassment and crime, how victims feel when they see uh, their perpetrators on TV, basically accusing them of misinterpreting or or even worse, their behavior.
4: Well, it's an outreach, but as you pointed out, the first victim who came forward, Brittany, the reason that she came forward was she was watching the governor's press conference where he said, I've never touched anybody inappropriately. And in the report, she said, I was going to take this to my grave. But when she saw his hypocrisy and his arrogance, she responded emotionally and told people about what happened. And as a result of that, you see his his web of lies um, completely uh, unfolding. I mean, he's not going to be able to sustain that. It angers people. Um, it's gaslighting. And I think it has not served him. But you are absolutely right, Rich, that he's taking a play from most harassers' playbooks. It worked for President Trump. You know, he was elected after the Access Hollywood tape, uh, where we all heard him bragging about grabbing women by their genitals uh hopefully things will get better but cuomo first started with apologizing if you recall and said he admitted the behavior he just said it was misinterpreted then he got more and more angry because people said you can't admit this behavior and apologize you have to act like you've been affronted you have to act like you're the victim here and unfortunately in some quarters that works because people still believe that women make these things up but there is no percentage for women to put themselves out there in this very public way, it's a very difficult choice. And I know when Charlotte did it, there was only one other person who was being smeared in the press, and she was very courageous to come forward. And we appreciate that other women came forward to support her. I think that's what how it works in this post-Me Too era.
1: That's Deborah Katz, founding partner of Katz, Marshall & Banks, and representing some of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's former aides currently accusing him of sexual harassment. Thank you, Deborah, for all that insight.
5: You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Face Off. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will, and Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit MWE.com.
1: Welcome back to the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio. Our next guest is Mayor Leandro, Ariano and Rich. We'll let you take it away. Yeah, Mayor, thank you so much for joining
3: us. Last week, of course, uh, former Dixon City Comptroller Rita Crenwell was released from prison eleven years ahead of schedule in 2013. Cronwell was sentenced to 19 years and seven months in federal prison for embezzling more than 53 million dollars from the city of Dixon, going back to 1990. Uh, were you and your were you and your citizens given any notice of this early release?
6: No, we we were not. Um, you know, in reaching out to them after the fact, they were told we were told that they supposedly sent a letter in July. You know, we've searched head or tails. We can't we can't find it. We've talked to legal enforcement in our region. None of those those key leaders were informed. Um, you know, we we do believe and they have not denied this. We've tried to lock it down that she was actually in the community area and home confinement briefly. We got that from multiple sources. You know, they wouldn't confirm. Was she in a halfway home? Uh, was she in home confinement? Was it mixed between the two? Um they simply haven't commented. So no, we we didn't know she was going to be released. We don't know to this moment. We don't know whether she was in the area or whether she was a halfway home the whole time. We don't know.
2: So Mayor, what's been the reaction by the victims of her crimes?
6: Oh, it, it's been very frustrating, obviously. There was a certain sense of justice that she got the max sentence you could get at that time. Oftentimes there's this mentality that white collar crime Uh, you know, doesn't get punished as much. And if you're rich and the numbers are big enough, the the penalties are minor. Uh, And that was something the judge and and the justice system even mentioned when they did this, despite some of her cooperation, they hit her with almost the max sentence. And so there was a sense of justice from that and hopefully some deterrent because Illinois is certainly known for its corruption at times. And this undermines all of that. And that's the mentality in the community As you talk to people, And it's not about being vindictive. It's about where does the line between justice and mercy fall? And for cases like this in a state where the corruption just seems to be outrageous, this undercuts what we felt was justice.
3: Yeah, Mayor, and one of the primary goals of the sentence was obviously to send a message, right, and to dissuade right. others from committing this kind of crime again. So I'm wondering, have you reached out to anyone at the federal level, the U.S. Attorney's Office or the, you know, the United States Senators to, s- to see what's going on and to voice you and your constituents' displeasure at, at, at this early release?
6: Absolutely. So we've uh, started reaching out to our congressman, uh, Congressman Kinzinger. Um, We've also reached out to the U.S. Marshals several times and the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, several times. We've had some kind of conversations on background, given everything that's moving around, you know, trying to get them to have official positions on this short notice. Um, since nobody knew it was coming, it hasn't really been possible. But we have been in conversations with them and we do intend uh, to have kind of a regional meeting in the next day or two uh, to try to get more concrete answers out of the Bureau of Prisons and especially to make sure, you know, she's not in this region. You know, one of the things we were concerned of is the Internet chatter can get very angry, as you can imagine. And when we got pretty credible sources saying she was in the region, we actually had to up some of our regional patrols just to make sure the public safety element um, didn't go out of whack. You know, would that have been extreme? I certainly hope it wouldn't have happened, but you don't want to get caught napping on that. Um, so, yes, we've been reaching out to all that because that's exactly what we don't want in the community.
2: So, Mayor, how do her crimes still
6: affect Dixon? You know, that's a great question. I think the if you're looking at the long tail effects, um, this was a crime that was done over 20 years. And to put it all in perspective, now in 2021, Dixon's operating budget is a little over $10 million. Our total budget, including utilities and all possible budgets, is a little over $20 million. She stole almost $54 million. That's over five full operational years of 2021, Dixon's budget. Um, So the answer is legion, quite frankly. You know, things that were cut out of the budget were things like economic development, which is the future lifeblood of a community, especially in rural America, where you really need to be aggressive and forward thinking about that. So the amount of planning that was cut off. You know, immense infrastructure was a huge one. Our streets and and public infrastructure was getting into a pretty bad shape. And for a river community with all the angles of a river valley and the bridges and and things like that, that's a very big deal. Um, You know, I could go right down a long list. There are positions that weren't rehired back. There was seasonal work that just didn't come in to provide services. There were permanent jobs that weren't done. You know, the public works department was shrinking, uh, which we've since been able to hire some back. Um, All of the things that required long-term planning and thought are exactly what was cut because Dixon went into a triage mode. We were borrowing so much just to pay the bills of that year that any forward thinking, utility expansion, economic development, um, all of those things got cut off. Tearing down abandoned homes that eventually become safety hazard and drug houses, that line got zeroed out of the item. It was just a legion of cuts all across the budget.
3: Uh, last question here. Uh, while we have you, we want to ask you about a topic that we're covering today that's hotly in the news. But I want to also say to our listeners and viewers, Dixon's a great town. I, I've, I've been through there many times. Uh, Ronald Reagan's boyhood home, of course, yes. is what it was famous for, unfortunately, before this all happened, but great place to visit. Um, but while we have you, uh, you know, mask mandates are hotly in the news now. Um, right. Obviously, the governor announced a requirement for every student in the state of Illinois to wear a mask. Uh, we were covering in a few minutes lawsuits in, in Florida and some other states involving mask mandates. How do you or your how do you and your constituents stand on this issue?
6: you know like most of the country there are some pretty intense splits. I think one of our big frustrations and, and you hate to get into the rural versus Chicago divide because I think that gets overblown at times um, but I was part of a group of mayors that you know we were kind of petitioning the governor in the beginning to go to a regional concept and understand that, You know, the heads per acre in areas of the suburbs or Chicago are just wildly different than Dixon. Um, So the answer is it should. This is a this is a pandemic that affects rural areas differently. And we don't like getting lumped into some of the statewide, you know, good for the bureaucracy, but bad for the locals mentality of handling this. So I don't like the statewide approach. I don't think too many people in the region like the statewide approach. Um, We want to know what's happening in our region. And when it flares up here, respond accordingly. Um, but to look at everybody under the same lens, that's that's one of the things that caused economic hardship in Illinois in the first place. And I don't like that approach.
1: It's Dixon's mayor, Leandro Ariano, who's also an active military member, along with joining us on today's show. Mayor, thank you for your service as well. Glad to join you. We all know the legal
3: world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com.
1: Moving along in the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio, and we move to the subject of some Chicagoans pushing for flotation devices along the lakefront for safety, but the Park District isn't sold on the idea. With that, we bring in law professor at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law, Nadav Shaked. Nadav, thank you so much for being here.
7: Oh, thank you for having me.
2: So professor just to provide some context for our listeners drowning is the fifth leading cause of death overall and according to the CDC is the leading cause of unintentional death in children 1 to 4 years old bringing this even closer to home Lake Michigan is considered a particularly dangerous body of water and as Joe mentioned there are a number of advocacy groups that are trying to create awareness about the dangers of drowning and to get some measures, safety measures put into place. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what those measures are and how big of a problem this is in Chicago?
7: Yes, yeah, so the, the measures they're suggesting, and at this point, it's mostly informal, so there's no real, um, uh, at this point, no proposal for actual state or city action on it. But the major uh, proposal that they're running with most recently is uh, to just provide, in essence, free flotation devices, in specific spots uh, along the beach, uh, which people can uh, use uh, themselves or to help others.
3: Professor, the Park District has countered that by uh, putting certain water safety measures in place, they would actually
7: uh, increase the liability of the Park District. What are your thoughts on that? So the the park district is concerned uh, from a legal perspective, at least, but their concern is that the moment you put in these devices, you as as you put it, you're increasing the likelihood that they're going to be exposed to some sort of liability. So, you know, say someone uses uh, the uh, flotation device in a way it shouldn't be used and as a result suffers an injury, they'll sue the park district or say the flotation device hasn't been maintained or something like that. And again, someone suffers an injury, he or she will sue, the, sue uh, the park district. The park district, obviously, from a legal perspective, wants to avoid death and
2: So, Professor, there's the liability issue, and then there are several other issues, too. For example, advocates say that there are policy reasons that need to be considered, specifically the desire to make sure that people are observing the rules and that they don't swim where they're not supposed to. There are also equity issues at play, too, with communities of color, particularly African-American boys, being at a high risk of drowning. What are your thoughts on how to strike the right balance among all of these factors with the end hope being to try to save lives?
7: Yeah, I mean, think it's a great question because, you know, it's, it's very tough uh, to not be sympathetic uh, towards the advocates. I mean, they've identified, as you put it, they've identified a real problem, Um people are dying and as you also put it uh, as you also uh, uh, explained it's an in- inequity problem because most of the people who do die tend to be uh, uh, tend to be poor tend to be minority and they tend to be um, you know the, the the most vulnerable portions of our population which is children who are minority and poor but then the problem becomes that well how do we actually deal with the problem and i think that what the Uh, park district is saying here and i think rather reasonably is that this is just not a good solution if anything it would make the problem worse because what's going to happen i mean you can just imagine it the moment you have those flotation devices available to anyone who wants to use them in spots where people are not supposed to go into the water it creates an incentive for people To jump into the water with those devices, uh, which, and then forget about the issue of the liability. I mean, yes, the park is concerned about that, but I doubt that's really at the heart of their concern. At the heart of their concern is this policy concern that counterproductive, it would be completely counterproductive, and that the park would actually help people or incentivize people to go into dangerous waters where they shouldn't.
3: Uh, Professor, I'm going to just switch gears and uh, ask you a, a, about another topic that uh, is really interesting here, both locally but nationally. And I know you've commented on before the Obama Presidential Center. Um, on Thursday of last week, a federal judge um, again denied the efforts, a lawsuit by Protect Our Parks to haul construction on the center. Um, and they've tried this before. I know you've again spoken out on this and you've got some thoughts. Do you have any Comments on whether um, Protector Parks' efforts to halt construction should continue, or whether, from a legal perspective, that's done.
7: I mean, look at this point it has nothing to do with law. I mean, of course they should not they should not continue, but of course they will continue because at this point they're just doing it for whatever other reasons. Uh, You know, when you lose basically every court imaginable to man, Uh, when you have an array of judges uh, 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 ruling against you, uh, but you still continue on, when to begin with your legal argument was to be charitable, weak, Uh, clearly you're not doing it based on the law. And I think that, you know, especially in the last round, it became obvious that they were making the argument, which to clarify, it's their argument, not mine. I think the argument is ludicrous. This is all political, that this is somehow an Obama conspiracy uh, now, forget about the fact that again it's ludicrous. It just the judge that had the major ruling against him is Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, this was her last, one of their last decisions on the Seventh Circuit. I don't know in what universe you perceive her as a as, a, as an Obama hot hack. It just it's, it's it's. So I think that the litigation has has gone completely off the rails. I mean, at the beginning there was at least a legally speaking an interesting question there. Uh, but you know they lost that question. That was about the, the question respecting the public trust doctrine and the ability to build something on, uh, on parkland. They lost it. Again, they lost it on every in every uh, 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 imaginable court. And then you know you just people just need to let go.
1: It's Professor Nadav Shiked of Northwestern Pritzker School of Law, Professor Shaked, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much.
0: Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey & Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than five percent of illinois attorneys rich is also an active member of his community including serving on organizations like the advisory board of legal prep charter academy and the board of visitors for the northern illinois university college of law in addition to his full-time practice rich is a prolific producer with credits including elvis presley's heartbreak hotel 85 the greatest team in football history starring barack obama bill murray and the coach mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey & Lenkoff, please visit bdlfirm.com. That's bdlfirm.com.
1: It's time for the legal grab bag here on the Legal Face Off podcast on WGN Radio. Let's get to our two esteemed guests and friends of the podcast. We'll start with John Bolger, comedian and also heard on WGN Radio. John, thanks for being here. Hey, along, thank you. With, along with Amanda Vinnicky, political correspondent on Chicago Tonight of WTTW and former State House Bureau Chief. Amanda, John, great to see both of you today.
6: Great to
8: be here. It is a beautiful Monday. <laughs>
9: Rainy Monday. Glad to be here. Not a comedian, but here for the fun.
3: Yeah, both multiple, ter- multiple time guests. Really uh, great to have you both back on. We're going to start off with uh, our first topic, which is, of, of course, Andrew Cuomo. The news today is, is twofold. Number one, uh, his top aide quit over the weekend and said that uh, she's endured two years of uh, emotional suffering. Uh, many are uh, accusing her of being one of the perpetrators of you know, reassigning the accuser. So she might face some additional liability down the road. And then also executive assistant number one, as we covered with our, with our guest Deborah Katz earlier, uh, she came out and she gave an interview to CBS this morning. Her name is Brittany Com- Comiso. And she said that on two separate occasions, the governor groped her. Uh, she gave some detail to CBS this morning. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, as of this morning, Cuomo has not responded. Uh, many are, um, uh, of course, uh, considering that he will resign. On Friday, as we talked about earlier, the Albany sheriff said that if these allegations are true, of course, he will be pursuing misdemeanor charges. Uh, the New York legislature has begun impeachment uh, investigation. So lots of trouble here for Cuomo. Um, and uh, he's still coming out fighting. His attorneys, uh, Tina, on Friday came out uh, defending the governor, saying these allegations were not true. And of course, uh, blaming some of the victims. So, what's your take on all of this?
2: Well, as we discussed earlier, I mean, it's just a terrible situation. He's making it worse for himself. Anything that he may have done at the beginning where he came out apologizing, as we discussed earlier, I think has been negated by how he's handled this in the interim. Um, This past week, it's been rapid fire in terms of the media on this. And I don't think he's handling this particularly well. It's a terrible situation. I I mean, my opinion, he should resign. It's going to be terrible for, for him and for everyone involved whether or not he resigns. But I think it's 100 times worse the longer he stays in office.
3: Yeah, mean you can't separate the uh, legal story in this case from the political story and from your vantage point covering politics here for so many years and especially covering you know similar allegations in many ways coming out of Springfield over the last two years um, politically. Can you imagine how Cuomo can get out of this, uh, how he could survive, or is his political career basically over?
9: I I do not see a path forward for Cuomo. Um, I I mean, I think that you who knows? I haven't talked to him at all. I don't I don't have a, a secret, you know, line to the guy. But I imagine there are some politicians that look at former President Donald Trump and say, hey, wait a second. He got elected after accusations of sexual harassment. People stood by him. He was the the, the people still want him to run for Mm reelection. And I imagine that there are some and, you know, Cuomo, when he's laying in bed tonight, presumably having a really tough time sleeping and thinking about all this, where did he go wrong? Where does he go forward? um, That he what is going on here what is the double stand president trump members of his party did uh you're not seeing cuomo getting that cuomo is having widespread calls for resignation in terms of bringing it locally here yes governor jb pritzker likewise said that cuomo should resign um his entire party the establishment in new york is piling on here and he hasn't dealt with this in any sort of particularly deft fashion um I think, as Christina said, the report, his sort of reaction to the uh, attorney, gen- attorney general's findings was instead all these pictures of politicians, you know, hugging, touching, and as if that was some sort of justification for touching, a going down a woman's shirt and down her boob, it, it, touching it, which is what Brittany Camiso alleged. So it, it is certainly a very difficult situation, and I don't imagine how he can get out of it. I, one other point here, I mean, I d- do think that this, this is just one of those things where um, how, the, the, the higher you rise, the, the more that you have to fall. And that, that is certainly a situation given how Cuomo was sort of made into this hero during the pandemic of taking action where it was needed. And then this is sort of the, the underbelly that is rising in part, frankly, through all of that recognition where people said, hey, wait a second, he isn't a hero.
3: Yeah, I mean, to that point a few months ago, um, after Biden had secured the nomination, but before he was elected, people were seriously talking about Biden stepping aside on the ticket and letting Andrew Cuomo step in. Uh, Remarkable. John, we'll finish up the topic with you. Um, You know, uh, Cuomo has engaged in what we see many men do in these situations, blame the victims, say they didn't um, they didn't properly interpret his uh, his his communication and also saying that this is generational and cultural differences. I don't know what generation you might be from, but generally, even going back a hundred years, men grabbing a woman's breast without their consent—not something that's you know well taken. He
8: done. That's it. It's uh, it's all over. Because the problem is, and you actually brought it up really well. Uh, um, he is in such deep jeopardy because he's making it worse. Uh, he's making a possibility where you could have a come to Jesus moment to say, "I not only did this, I need to change the way I behave." Because here's, here's the thing, society's moved past him. So that's why he, he doesn't even realize this isn't, I know you guys mentioned earlier, it's a political issue. It's a criming issue. It's criminal activity. You can't treat people like this in a workspace. You can't do this to anyone else. Everybody has moms, sisters, daughters. This is just, and, and here's the thing, he swears up and down because he's that guy. I'm a good guy. He doesn't see the monster in the reflection yet. As this goes forward, I mean, what are there? Thirteen depositions that are all identical. I mean that this is not this is predatorial behavior. Where I mean, you it's obvious. It's just prima facie. It's just right on its face. And the, the thing that he's doing is
3: prima facie. Look at Bolger <laughs> throwing out the legal terms. Yeah, <laughs> I know prima, he's prima facie. up on their legal. <laughs> I
8: mean, isn't that what you get from uh, Chanel? Don't you put it on overnight? That's prima facie. I'm pretty sure. But, uh, I'm not positive. Uh, but he, he's actually digging. He's 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 killing his career way quicker because it's there's no recovering from this. And it's only going to get worse as more people see all the the horrible stuff. So this is this is a guy who thinks he's above the law. That's about it.
1: We move from one governor to another rich Florida Governor Ron DeSantis facing two different lawsuits for his mask mandate.
3: It's a governor-heavy uh, program. That's why we're so happy to have Amanda Vinicky on the show. Um, yeah, lots of uh, legal aspects to what's going on with COVID. Obviously, COVID is surging now over the last couple of weeks. I think uh, by most accounts here in Illinois, hospitalizations have doubled. So it's getting bad with the Delta variant. Um, in Florida, as you mentioned, Governor DeSantis has passed a law basically saying that he will defund schools and withhold funds if uh, they enforce mask mandates in response uh, there are different pockets of Florida who have now filed lawsuits against DeSantis, saying we need masks. Right. Uh, in addition to that, um, uh, a couple of interestingly, a couple of legislators who were opposing Nancy Pelosi's mask mandate have themselves now contracted COVID um, here in Illinois. Uh, we'll get to this in a minute se- in a second, but uh, I want to talk with the Illinois aspect for a second. But Tina, um, DeSantis you know, is seemingly speaking for a lot of people. This has obviously become somehow a political issue, a very partisan issue, where a large segment of the population, many who of whom are conservative, feel that wearing a mask is somehow a liberal item. We saw this rally in Sturgis over the weekend, something like 700,000 bikers all getting together. Didn't look like many masks among them. Um, we saw Lollapalooza, on the other hand, in Chicago you know, last week with a hundred thousand people per day with no mask. So, uh, what except are for you, Rich, except for me, I was the one old guy there with a mask. <laughs> what are your thoughts on on the legal aspects of these mask mandates?
2: I mean, I here, here's the thing, Rich. I mean, we're still in the middle of a global pandemic, and we still have you know, and, and as these variants continue to evolve, we're just going to have to figure it out. And at the end of the day, if you're dealing with folks many of whom don't want to get vaccinated. Let's just start with that as the premise that a lot of these folks are not vaccinated. I I think that there's an obligation to keep others, include not just yourself, but others from contracting COVID and protecting them by wearing masks. I, I just think it's untenable to be in a situation where you're not going to get vaccinated and you're not going to wear a mask. Like those two things just cannot coexist, in my, in my opinion.
3: Amanda, the Illinois State Fair announced that they are mandating masks indoor. That's an event that uh, you have covered for, for years. Um, here in Illinois, J.B. Pritzker is running for re-election. Again, you know, this has become a, a political issue. Um, many downstate and, and conservative uh, Illinoisans, including Darren Bailey, who has filed a lot of lawsuits uh, against Governor Pritzker, Over his handling of COVID and lost every one of those lawsuits um, is obviously uh, an anti-masker as well. What are your thoughts locally about how these lawsuits will play out? Inevitably, there'll be some here in Illinois as well, although from a legal perspective, that issue has been decided, I think. But what are your thoughts on all of this?
9: Well, so, right, it comes down to what some perceive to be free speech as if the as if masks are no matter what is printed on them or whether they're those plain disposable ones, that this is somehow a matter of free speech versus one of public health. And that's where it seems By and large, the the federal courts are saying, hey, no, wait a second. This is a tool to protect the public interest, to protect the public health. And so it is not infringing on free speech.
3: John, why don't you jump in? Because Amanda's having some technical issues, it looks like.
8: Not a problem. Not a problem at all. Um, I will say this patriotic choking noises on the Gadsden flag. That's that's pretty much what you're looking at. Uh, You're looking at people who are not tethered to reality. Uh, It's actually not even a political issue. It's a scientific one that they're putting a beachhead there for reasons I have no clue about. I I really don't. Um, I think it's also weird because when you really think about it, it's asking the question, do I have a First Amendment right now? You guys are the legal scholars. You guys are the experts. But I will tell you this. I don't think there's a, like a Jim Jones clause to be like, well, I believe it to be true. So if I kill people with me, that's that's legal. It's it's not. It's just not. it's it's a canard. And I think it tells you where the conservative movement, sadly, is today. They're running out of options to where they need to make these political issues because they've lost on a lot of other issues to where now they're fighting science or medical science or virology. To me, that's bonkers. It's it's
1: batshit. shit. <laughs> Like we said, a governor-heavy legal grab bag of the Legal Face-Off podcast. We go to Missouri, where Mike Parson, the governor of Missouri, pardons two St. Louis uh, lawyers that waved their guns at Black Lives Matter protesters last summer, Tina.
2: Yeah, so last week, Missouri Governor Mike Parson, as Joe mentioned, pardoned um, our two favorite St. Louis lawyers that that we covered quite a bit on Legal Face-Off last summer, Um, At the time that the protests were happening, this happened to be a peaceful protest. They brandished their semi-automatic pistol and AR-15 rifle at um, protesters that were walking by their house on the way to the mayor's home to engage in a peaceful protest. Um, The Missouri governor decided that he was going to pardon them and had said that he intended to and made good on that promise last week. Um, both of the McCloskeys had been indicted by a grand jury last October on felony charges, and those charges were later amended. Um, in June of this, of this summer, Mark McCloskey pled guilty to misdemeanor fourth-degree assault and paid a meager $750 in a fine, and Patricia pled guilty um, to misdemeanor harassment and paid a $2,000 fine. So, Mark McCloskey has been actually very vocal on this and said that if he had to do it all over again, he would. And now he's running for a US Senate seat. So, I think he feels very empowered by the whole situation. Um, can't say I'm surprised, Rich. I mean, we were talking about this a long time ago. And given the circumstances, I can't say that I'm surprised at this result.
3: Well, it's like anything else, right? It's become like we've talked about so far on the show. It's become a political issue. Uh, The governor, Parson, uh, announced that he would do this when he was running for re-election. And interestingly, you know, his office had time to deal with this, but not a backlog of other clemency requests that have been on his desk for months, including um, a longtime inmate, Kevin Strickland, who several prosecutors have now said is innocent from a 1978 Kansas City triple homicide uh he hasn't dealt with that yet but he you know had time to devote to the mccloskeys um so you know that's uh that's kind of an interesting take john what are your what are your thoughts on the uh the gun Tony mccloskeys so you oh, have uh in the senate here pretty soon <laughs> you
8: have billy the turd and fanny oakley um this is just this is gross because now the scales of justice look like you put money on your political uh, will uh to what you want to get out of court uh that's horrible. It's a horrible precedent. But you have to remember you're, uh, you're dealing with that governor who basically wants to use his power and wield it that way. The voters will hold him accountable because I think you guys bring up a really good point. They want to see clemency cases or actual justice being served, not favors. Um, that's the swamp they always talk of. That's literally a, a viable working definition of the swamp they so claim to hate. It's gross. It's a gross thing. It's a gross situation. And I hope I hope the voters hold them accountable.
9: You know, I'll quickly jump in. This is a related legal issue, because finally this week, we're supposed to get census data that is going to result in the new drawing of Congressional districts and you know redistricting, getting to gerrymandering—something that the courts really haven't dealt with yet, Um, frankly—and that's sort of what we're talking about: the politicization of so much that seems like it shouldn't be political. Um, Inherently, of course, politics are part of everything, and I wouldn't have a job if that weren't. But uh, I mean, really, when you talk about public health and you talk about justice, those are some of the areas where you want politics to be removed and there is, I think, a very strong argument to be made that how districts are drawn results in hyper partisanship. And that's one of the many reasons that you do have people really fighting for either um, the particular conservatives or particular progressives who come out to vote. And it's left us in a situation such as this.
1: He's back. (laughs) <laughs> Former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich says his civil rights were violated, Rich, and that could open the opportunity for him to run run for office again.
3: Yeah, he was back last Monday at the Dirksen Federal Building where it all began uh, for him. Uh, he even commented on that. It was weird to be back. And, uh, you know, now he's now he's a free man. But he's filed he filed a lawsuit, um, which many legal experts, including us, I think me and Tina will probably agree is nonsense because basically he's alleging that he did not have the benefit of due process when the legislature passed the law that prevents him from ever running for office again. What he forgets is that he was afforded all those opportunities and declined. Um, Now he's coming back and saying, well, I wasn't given the chance to do that. I should be allowed to run, even though, by the way, I have no plans on running. I'm just doing this, you know, uh, for, for the argument and for, you know, the established precedent, but I think it's, it's safe to assume that Blago is back in many ways. uh, He might not be running, but this is uh, another chance for him to get in front of the cameras. He did mention that there was an ABC crew there documenting uh, his appearance. There'll be a forthcoming documentary one that one assumes. So, uh, you know, any good, any news is good news for Blago, it seems like Tina.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, especially when you're um, looking at it from the frame of reference of somebody who spent many years in jail, right? I mean, this is nothing compared to being in jail for many years. And I agree with you, Rich, that this is to say it's a publicity stunt makes it, makes it sound more pejorative than I'm intending it to, but it's publicity. And I think in his mind, you know, all publicity is good publicity, especially when you're no longer in jail. Uh,
3: Amanda, this is your beat, of course. Uh, I was putting aside the legal issues, again, we could dive into the legal issues, and the court will, and I think they will similar, summarily reject them. But are you surprised to see Blago back at Dirksen?
9: No. I mean, I guess... Dirksen, because you'd think he'd want to stay as far away from there as possible. But then again, as he held this press conference, you did have people drive by honking at him, shouting at him, a tour bus where people really were attracted to whatever was going on and then shouted toward Blago. So I guess maybe not all that surprised, given that um, even though downtown is still fairly sparse, (laughs) he wants to be where the people are. And everything about it was very classic Rod Blagojevich. There was no remorse. No admitting any wrongdoing, Um, talking about Madigan being at fault. As you noted, there are plenty of legal issues there. Most people expect that this will be summarily tossed out and that it is frivolous. I did speak with one attorney who thought that maybe there's a sliver of opportunity here. But uh, again, getting back to politics, an impeachment process is inherently political this is a political role a political decision it does not have to operate the same as you know a a jury of one's peers would if you were in the criminal justice system so it, it is very different and um what was not different was rod blagojevich other i guess than the color of his hair he had of course classically dyed it this you know really dark brown um the the bouffantish sort of flip was still there but while he was in prison it was white Now it seemed um, mostly sort of a a little bit of salt and pepper and in between.
3: (laughs) Bolger, how do you feel about uh, reappearance of Blagojevich's hair on the public scene?
8: As the youngest of five in an an Irish Catholic family, look
3: at me, look at me. I
8: want attention. Look at me. Look at me. That's all this is. He just it clearly he doesn't have a lot to do outside of the outside of a a six by eight because there's this is. This is where we're at. So he is using the same bad activities that got him in trouble because he knows only that. So he just is seeking attention and he wants attention. What you do similar to social media, if you deny them that attention, they get very upset. It's like a kid. If you just ignore them, they're going to freak out. There's a juice box flinging in the back. There's going to be loud stomping. And that's pretty much what you're looking at. Blagojevich just wants attention and to remain relevant as the world has already moved past him.
1: Maybe you should start doing commercials for, what is it, Touch of Gray? I think that's the (laughs) salt and pepper look that you were trying to get at, Amanda. Uh, We stay in the Midwest, but we move to the Hoosier State. Indiana University, Tina, is requiring all of their students to get vaccinated. The ones that are against it are not being supported after it's reached a federal appeals court.
2: That is true, Joe. So last week, the Seventh Circuit sided with Indiana University When um, eight students had been seeking an injunction against the university, which is requiring all students to get vaccinated. Um, Unless the students have either a medical exemption or a religious exemption, that's the rule. All students have to be vaccinated. Um, And those who have the exemptions, either for medical or religious reasons, need to be wearing a mask and to get tested for COVID twice a week. The students who are bringing this suit claim that their 14th Amendment rights to personal autonomy and bodily integrity were violated. And what's really interesting is that the court and the appeals court in denying the injunction compared this case to a 1905 U.S. Supreme Court case that was Jacobson versus Massachusetts involving the smallpox vaccine. And what the appeals court did here was say that case was a lot more restrictive than this one because everybody had to get the smallpox vaccine and there were no exemptions. What's interesting is that the attorney for the student says that he's going to appeal this all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. We've heard this before and sometimes nothing comes of it. But in keeping with our conversation throughout this show about the mask mandates and um, protests you know over whether or not to have to be vaccinated wear a mask i found this case interesting um not terribly surprising that the seventh circuit took this took this yeah,
3: yeah and the other reason they gave was because you have a choice right the 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 other the other law applied to everyone this uh right mandate says if you don't like it go somewhere else you don't have to go to indiana university which i think is a key distinction but at the end of the day the you know all of these lawsuits, are being decided across the board across the country along the same lines that we as a society and the government as the you know uh managers of that for lack of a better term we as a society have the right to be safe and to be free and you know safe from this coronavirus and free from getting it and that need that right outweighs the individual right to not get it right and um, not it's a little tricky when you're when you're making people get the shot. That's why over the weekend, for example, Rahm Emanuel said, "Let's not call it a mandate. Let's call it a requirement." The wording doesn't make much of a difference, but at the end of the day, from a legal perspective, every court, including those in Illinois that we talked about earlier, have said that listen, your right to individual freedom stops at uh, me getting an illness from you, and that's just legally where all these cases have gone. Um, Amanda, John, any any thoughts on this? Well, I
8: think this is the funny part because this is already decided. It's already clearly decided and there's no controversy over it. This is we had polio. We had a yellow fever. We've had MMR. These have already happened, asked and answered. And what's so bizarre about it, it's like someone who goes, I, my book's not Harry Potter. I don't know the end of that. Mine is called Little Mr. Lord Knickers. And he's a wizard and he does it. it we, the ending is still the same Every time.
3: So Mr. what's Ball odd of, is also Bulger's nickname in college, wasn't it? <laughs> well,
8: I mean, yeah, I had so many. I mean, low. L- wait, it has to be low, Mr. Nickers. <laughs> but yeah, it's already been decided. It's it's silly that people are now so people who are not very legally skilled are now thinking they're coming up with a new question that the courts haven't ruled or decided on. I mean, objectively, very simply. And they're like, but I have a right. No, you don't.
9: I guess, as uh, is, is a non-attorney, it will be noteworthy to see because I, all eyes continue to be on the Supreme Court. So, I mean, thus far, this has all been at the the federal appeals level, but we haven't seen something like this go before the Supreme Court with its um, new majority where people are still, I think, kind of feeling out where where do these, particularly because um, some people do see this as a religious issue, despite Indiana and many of the other universities when it comes to vaccine mandates having religious exemptions. So, um It doesn't seem as if we've seen the six to three court pan out as Uh, conservative leaning as some expectations had been. But I I think people will be watching it. And I will add from an Illinois angle, when you talk about these mandates and where else it's going to go, we're going to be watching. How does that work? Where else will these restrictions and mandates, requirements, whatever you want to call it, come into play? Because there is most certainly a whole lot of pushback from unions thus far when we've seen it try to be implemented at the workplace on the government side.
1: Plenty of issues in America. So let's go down to Mexico, who has an issue with U.S.-based gunmakers for the overflow of weapons across the national border, Tina.
2: Yeah, Joe. So last week, Mexico sued several gunmakers, including Smith & Wesson, Barrett Firearms and Colts, in U.S. federal court, accusing them of reckless business practices in connection with supplying firearms to the Mexican drug cartels. The lawsuit claims that these manufacturers knew that their weapons were being used for these cartels and that they actually intentionally marketed their guns to the cartel market. It also claims that they knew that the weapons are being trafficked and are being designed with different sort of characteristics to specifically appeal to the cartels. So the lawsuit is seeking $10 billion in damages, which the Mexican government claims is the damage tied to the gang violence and is also seeking tighter controls on gun sales, um, as well as better security features on the weapons themselves. The gun manufacturers argue, and this is not unexpected, that Mexico should be taking responsibility for the violence within its borders and that the responsibility really does not lie with the gun manufacturers. Um, this is an interesting case. I think on the merits, it's pretty tough. Um, but the feeling of, among folks in the Mexican government is that they had to file this because of the circumstances. So very interesting case, Rich.
3: Yeah, I don't know if it's going anywhere, but it is an interesting legal theory. What I learned from researching the story was that it's really hard to buy a gun in Mexico. Surprisingly, mm-hmm. we, we, we picture Mexico as this, you know, uh, no holds bar, you know, country with weapons uh, everywhere, but really almost impossible to get a weapon in Mexico. So when you think of it that way and you think, well, how are these weapons getting in? Um, you know, it's got to be coming from somewhere in the U S is the natural, natural uh, location. But um, are we going to then turn around to Mexico for the you know, I, I, many conservatives would be on board with suing Mexico right now for a variety of things that they bring us. I mean, Donald Trump being, you know, the most famous accuser from the day he announced his presidential campaign coming down the escalator, he said, you know, they're sending their their drugs, their rapists, etc. cetera. So um, it's kind of a Pandora's box when you start to sue cross borders this way. Uh, Amanda, what are your thoughts on this?
9: Yeah, you know, um, certainly there's a lot to be said about border control, lax border control. Should it be more uh, aggressive and what should happen there? But moving on from sort of that argument, um, I I do wonder whether this could change the behavior of firearms manufacturers at all, as there still is an ongoing Sandy Hook um, court case with Remington going on. If there will be any sort of take the heat off, at the very least, you know, not a settlement, perhaps this doesn't have much merit in court, but, okay, adding uh, things like um, traceability to guns, uh, making them less lethal, and sort of an overture to the American people as well as to the, the Mexican Mexican government here, but um, it is certainly right now in the US, I know that manufacturers are really quite shielded from any sort of liability. So interesting to see another government try and move forward at that point in time. Um, From again, what I read about this, part of it is not just the lax gun control, but also just how lethal these guns are. I mean, we're not talking a pistol, they're talking about AK 47s. And certainly. There are plenty of uh, reasons where violence is rampant in Mexico. But as you do have a government that has tried and thus far not had much success in toning it down, um, this being just another attempt as they're almost sort of grasping, it seems, for anything that will make a difference there.
1: Moving a little bit back north up the border to the Dallas Cowboys running back, Ezekiel Elliott, currently facing a $100 million, rather a $1 million lawsuit for uh, his dog allegedly attacking one of his neighbors. And uh, I don't think this is the first time this has happened with him, Rich.
3: Well, that's the key. The allegation is that on May 21st, uh, one of uh, Ezekiel Elliott's dogs bit two people while they got loose from a landscaping company. Uh, they're also suing the landscaping company. Uh, they were doing work at the plaintiff's house and or actually at Ezekiel Elliott's house. And all three of the dogs, including one who was a Rottweiler, uh, escaped causing the plaintiff severe and permanent injuries. But the key really uh, to this case is whether this state and I assume it's Texas, although this, I can't really quite tell, but whether the state is a what's known as a you know, one bite rule. Uh, state. And what that means, we've covered this before in our show. It's a little bit interesting is that in many states, you get a free dog bite as an owner, uh, because the law is such that if you don't know that your dog has some sort of uh, proclivity to biting people, then you're not negligent because you don't know that dogs bite, which is kind of an odd theory, right? It's a dog, it's an animal. Um, So the idea in Texas, at least, is that unless you know that your dog was prone to bite people then you're not negligent and you can't be sued for you can be sued for damages but you won't be held liable now again in this lawsuit the allegation is that there have been prior incidents so he would probably lose that argument in illinois however it's not a one dog bite rule test it's a strict liability um state which means that it doesn't really matter if you knew or you shouldn't know or you didn't know um you're liable if you're the owner of the dog that bit someone um tina are you a dog owner
2: I am not currently a dog owner, but I'm a dog lover and grew up with dogs. The only reason why I don't have a dog is because Sussler is allergic.
3: Ah, okay. So the uh, one dog bite doesn't apply to you. Sussler hasn't bitten anyone, we assume, right?
2: No, no. (laughs) At least not lately.
3: (laughs) All right. Uh, Bolger, Amanda, what are your thoughts on uh, Zeke Elliott's liability here? And how will it affect his ability to play running back? He's coming off a down year a little bit, Joe. Uh, well, it's kind
8: of weird too if you think about it. Um, this sounds more like Oprah. I didn't know this rule where you get a dog bite, you get a free, dog, <laughs> you get a free dog bite. Like everybody that's, gets a dog bite. That's that is so cool that the law was reflexive because you don't know the psychological makeup of what pet you have. So it's like they give you a free grace period. Like, what well, my right. dog sucks, you know. But uh, I I think it's weird because the dog's name is Ace. Maybe maybe instead of cards, maybe stick with Uno. Like skip four or just you know do. Take better care of your pets because they can affect and impact other people. And the, the injuries are pretty serious from what I, uh, I
3: recall. Yeah, they can be for sure. Amanda, end us off with uh, your thoughts on the one dog bite rule.
9: I will just say that, I mean, it, it's tough because a dog is a dog is an animal and I you know, you, you just want to see people being careful. When I like see a kid sticking its you know head near a dog's face, you're like, wait a second, back off. Because you never know. They are animals, even the cutest and sweetest of these um, puppies, particularly if they're scared and they're on the loose. So um, that to me is one of these things where, yes, I would have a hard time concentrating because I don't have a dog right now, but I've had dogs. I've had cats. I love them. They're like members of your family. And so I would have a very tough time concentrating and playing football or doing anything if my little babies were in trouble i'm guessing a million dollars in damages isn't all that much to a nfl star but what do i know i'm not one of those and i don't have a spare million bucks but um hopefully these people are okay and um it is true if you have a dog that is a responsibility so watch them tie them up make sure that they're okay so that neither the dog nor you nor any victim is put in that situation
1: Back to what you just said, Rich, couldn't Zeke Elliott just say, oh, I'm having an off year. I I got a crazy dog back at home. I I have so much to deal with right now. I I can't even handle it right now. Uh, You wanted to end this with a Bears prediction, though. I I don't know if I've got a Bears prediction on the entire team, but how about uh, what game Justin Fields will make his debut? I'm kind of going like Game three, week three, week four range? I don't know. What do you think?
3: Yeah, a lot of us have uh, – I'm a, I'm a bearish season ticket holder, big fan. A lot of us have, have gamed this out, right, and and looked at the exact game. Yeah, I think consensus is maybe game – anywhere between game three and five. You know, they could, they could go into game four with, like, you know, a winning record if you look at the schedule, and then plop fields in there. But on the other hand, if uh, the Red Rifle is
1: winning, you know, it's hard to take them out. Does uh, do you think Andy Dalton gets a, a one interception rule like, uh-huh. like- <laughs> you know, it's funny. I saw a clip for uh, hard
3: knocks. The Cowboys are back on hard knocks on HBO uh, this year. And the clip I saw was Ezekiel, Ezekiel Elliott lost looking for his room and carrying bags throughout this big <laughs> complex. So maybe his mind is not right from this from this lawsuit. <laughs> yeah. Again, he's, he's got a
1: lot of things going on right now. Older right. Right. Bears predictions, quick. What's their
3: uh, week five
8: for sure? And uh, I guess Zeke is stuck in the dog days of summer.
1: Hoyo,
3: there you go. That's why. I, that's why you get a John Bowles around the show right there. Amanda Bears winning record this season.
9: Playoffs. Uh, I, I, I no give uh, zero hoots. I'm here for the um, White Sox World Series win. That, that's so that's what I'm focused on right now.
8: Sweep, sweep. Say sweep with me.
9: I mean, it was incredible. So we it was fabulous. Keep it going, boys.
1: It's crazy. We're out of time, huh? Funny how that works. Uh-huh. Um, all right. <laughs> that does it for the legal grab bag portion of the legal face off podcast on WGN radio. Big thanks to John Bolger, Amanda Vinicky, our two guests here on legal grab bag. A big thanks to our two co-hosts, Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. Also, big thanks to Ben Anderson, Emily Flores, and Gabrielle Headley. I'm Joe Brand. We'll see you next time on the legal face off podcast. It's Christina
0: Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Cover in Sports
1: Hollywood and don't forget.